Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them, and the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. And in the house, his, the disciples asked him about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. As we have, uh, as I've studied this text now for several months, I've had all of Christmas to think about it and the beginning of the new year to think about it. And as we've been spending now three years unpacking it and talking about it, I am left with the inescapable conclusion. And that conclusion is this, that the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage is a difficult and very complex issue. The fact that divorce exists and that the Bible even allows for divorce for any reason at all, even in the most extreme cases, means that this is a difficult and a very complex issue. And to make this even more difficult... Right? Here's something that I understand about people, and that's simply this. We don't like difficult and complex issues. We just don't. We want, we want clear issues. We want black and white issues. We want clear lines. We want clear parameters. Just, just tell me what the boundaries are, right? That way I know exactly where to stand. But here's the reality. Much of the Christian life... If you actually follow Jesus, you will discover much of the Christian life is difficult and complex. For instance, when, when, when you know, we're called, we know, to be like Christ, to grow to be more like him, to imitate him, to change and become conformed to his image. But you see in John chapter 1 that Christ comes into the world and he's full of both grace and truth. John chapter 1 verse 14 says very clearly, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of both of those, grace and truth. And not 50% grace and not 50% truth, but full up of both of them, which means that we also need to be like him and be full of grace and truth. Which, by the way, if there's anything that's complex, that's it. Because it would just be easier for us to go one way or the other. Right? Which is what we see all over the world and all over the church. 
You have people on one hand who are all in for the grace and the love of God, and they're so loving and accepting and, and, and gracious, and, and, and they just want everybody to be happy, and they just want to make everybody feel loved, but they never deal with the truth issues of sin. The idea is that, that if, you, is if we will just love them enough, then Christ will then somehow magically come into their heart. If you just love them enough, somehow they will figure out their need for Christ. But the Word of God makes it really clear that they're not going to believe until they hear the truth. On the other hand, you have people who, are, who, are, who find it very easy to speak the truth. And because they are speaking truth, and they feel the authority of the truth, they feel very vindicated to be forceful and bold, and I would even say some people even hateful. Right? And oftentimes those, those who focus primarily on, on the truth side of of their faith tend to alienate that those people that they're talking to because there is no apparent love in them. But Jesus said that we're the light of the world and that we're to let our light shine, which means our good deeds are to be visible. People need to see the light of Christ in us. That is the love that we show the world around us. And so we're called to walk simultaneously both in grace and truth, which means We always must tell the truth, but we must do so with great love and grace and humility and and respect. We must be enduring and patient and long-suffering, but also continue to uphold the truth. We must extend vast amounts of grace for other people, even when they push back against the truth that we share. And believe me, this is a difficult balance at times to maintain. Why? Because it's complex. And so in following, and same thing with following Christ, by the way, because we know, right? We know that if you're a Christian, you're called to obedience in the pursuit of personal holiness, but you also know that's not what saves you, right? And in fact, you can't even walk in obedience and be holy on your own efforts. You must continually walk in faith and repentance, depending upon Christ to change you as much as you want to change yourself. You recognize your, your fallenness before God, but that fallenness should, should drive you to more dependence upon Christ, which again is difficult, right? Living a, a life dependent on Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit rather than by your own efforts can still be very challenging. I mean, think about it. Like for me, I just want the rules. Tell me what to do. Right? Tell, me not what, tell me what not to do. Just give me the clear boundaries and let me stay within them, and then I'll be good. And so there are so many people who will go to the Bible hoping that they will define for themselves the rules right, and, and, and the possibility, every possible scenario of their life. There are so many of us that want to go to the Bible and say, the Bible's got to give me a clear answer on this thing or that thing, rather than actually going to the Bible and digging in and seeking wisdom and, and really depending upon God through the Holy Spirit to guide us. We ask questions like, well, can, are Christians allowed to drink? And believe me, there are people who will think that there's a hard and fast answer to that, that question. And I'm going to tell you, if they say that, then say, show me the biblical proof of that. And you'll find that they're, they're, they're going to struggle with that. Because the Bible does not have a clear answer for that question. Can Christians get tattoos, right? Or how about this? You know, are guitars allowed in, in worship music? Or can, should Christians eat kosher diets? People make those arguments all the time. Should we fast on a regular basis? How how much time should you you spend praying every day? How much time should you spend reading your word every day? How much longer do I have to put up with that? My my boss at work 
before, I have to, before I'm finally within my rights to push back and tell him he's a jerk. Right? And the answer to all those questions and many more is, it depends. Right? And that's not the answer that you're looking for, but it, but it depends, right? It depends on a number of factors. It depends on, on where you are in your walk with God, right? Where you are personally in your, in your walk with God, in your level of maturity, and what kinds of things in your life tend to become idols to you. That should be, should be a big influence in your life. What kinds of things tend to enslave you? How will this, this decision that you're about to make, how will it affect the intimacy you have with Christ, right? And just because you can do something, just because you're allowed to do something doesn't mean that you should. So I say it depends. Now, now I want you to, be, to hear me, to be sure, the Bible, in, in the Bible there are many things that are very, very clear. Like the prohibition against all sexual sin. Sexual sin in all forms is to be repented of, and, and Paul says, actually, that we need to flee from it. It's very clear. Or how about the fact that, you, that, that we were born into sin, and that no one comes to faith except through Christ. That's very clear. Or, or how about this, that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Those things are crystal clear. But there are some other things in the Bible that just simply God is not going to just answer very simply for you. And because of that, it's going to require great wisdom, and it's going to requ- require a great commitment to study the Word and, and to really get up close with God and to depend upon His Holy Spirit to guide you. And for some of you, that's going to take a couple days to get through. Some of you will have to wrestle with some of these decisions for years. And one such issue that's very complex is the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And, from, and it was that way from the beginning all the way up to now. From the beginning all the way up to now, there has been this tendency, right, in issues like this issue, and the issue of grace and truth, to gravitate towards one extreme or to the other extreme. It seems like the gravitational pull of this issue is either toward one extreme over here or one extreme over here. In fact, in that time, the extremes of, of this discussion were, were defined by two rabbinical schools of thought. Uh, the different schools of thought that, that had you know, basically the opposite perspectives. You had, on the one hand, the conservative school led by Re- uh, Rabbi Shammai, um, and, and it basically said that the only possible grounds for divorce at all was adultery or sexual immorality. Like, like very strict, like that's it, nothing else. On the other hand, you had the very liberal school of thought led by Rabbi Hillel, who said that a man could divorce his wife for basically any act of indecency. And the idea then of indecency was interpreted in the very broadest possible sense of the word, meaning that a man could divorce his wife for really anything he found indecent, including burning his supper. And so what you end up with then is extreme polar opposite points of view. You have the strict point of view on the one hand, and you have the very loose liberal point of view on the other hand, which, by the way, is what we see in Christianity today. You have the point of view that divorce is absolutely prohibited in all cases unless somebody commits adultery, and there's no allowance in for remarriage. I've heard that espoused by people before. Or that you have the very liberal view that God wants you to be happy, and if you can't be happy in your marriage, you shouldn't be forced to stay married because God, you know, he wouldn't want you to be unhappy, by the way. You see, we've been having the same debate for 2,000 years. 
For 2,000 years, this, this topic has been discussed. And, and we as Christians, because, because this is such a complex and sensitive and painful issue, we want for the Bible just to simply spell it out for us what the rules are. We just want to know exactly where the lines are so we know where, we're sta- where we can stand. What can I do and still be all right with God is really the question that many of us want to ask. And because of that, and because we're looking for the simple answer, we gravitate either to one extreme or, or the other. But let me just begin to explain to you what extremes get for us. If you take the liberal point of view that a person can get divorced simply because they're unhappy, you, af- you effectively destroy the institution of marriage. You just, you just destroy the foundation on which it is built. You destroy the family, you destroy the fabric of society, and you render the portrait of, of this blessed union of Christ and his church as a meaningless metaphor at that point. Marriage ceases to be sacred, and it ceases to be a supernatural union between a husband and a wife. It ceases to be meaningful you know, at all, except for it's just a place for you to gratify your flesh. In fact, if you adopt the liberal view, then there is not even any point to be married at all. There's not any, I mean, really, it's just, it's, it's just a revolving door at that point, because it's devoid of any meaning. But on the other hand... The extreme conservative view that there's only one possible cause for divorce, and that's adultery, that strict view has wreaked havoc in countless lives and families throughout Christianity. Because well-meaning ministers of the gospel and, and Christians trying their very best to give biblical counsel and to tell the church have urged people to stay together in spite of things like physical abuse. It's happened. This is where the church has gotten it wrong or emotional abuse, or sexual abuse, or financial irresponsibility that's ruined families' collective lives and put them in jeopardy, or the neglect and abandonment on behalf of one spouse or the other towards their spouse and their families. Churches have said, you've got to make it work. You've got to stick it out. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to work through those damaging psychologically and physically and emotional scenarios. The church at times has doomed countless wives and children to a life of terrible suffering by adopting the stance that the only possible reason to be divorced is adultery. The church has marginalized countless men who quietly suffered physical and emotional abuse at the hands of their wives as well. It's more common than you think. Not to mention the church has failed at times to urge people to reconcile even when there is the fact of adultery. You see, just because a person can get divorced for adultery doesn't mean that they should. Because God can heal even the worst kinds of heartaches. And so with that, I'm convinced that it is irresponsible for us to try to write a rule book and and create hard and fast lines and and standards by which to try to look at this issue. I firmly believe that the Bible has a lot to say about this, but there's a lot of area that things are are still not quite clear. And I will from the outset say, we have to be very careful in how dogmatic we are with respect to this issue. In fact, Danny Aiken in his commentary on Mark says this, he goes, dogmatism and certainty are not appropriate in an area where good and godly students who affirm the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible hold differing views. 
or in other words, there are many conservative scholars who hold a high view of Scripture and a high view of God and who deeply desire to know and follow God's will and to be conformed to the Scriptures who differ from one another on this topic. And if they differ, then we would be very wise to tread carefully then on this subject. And that's my aim today. My aim is to be careful, to tread carefully here. I do not want to stray off in either ditch, the ditch of legalism on one side or the ditch of liberalism on the other. And and more to the point, I, I don't want to open the door for people to think that divorce isn't a really big deal because it is. Obviously it is. God created marriage and he hates divorce. And divorce is horribly destructive. I don't care who you are and what you think it is. It is destructive. And it should be avoided if at all possible. But at the same time, I do not want for those who've already been through divorce to feel like that there's no hope to overcome the shame and the stain that they feel from their sin. I don't want them to lose sight of the gospel promise that God's forgiveness extends to all of our transgressions, even to this. And I certainly don't want to communicate to anyone who may be enduring abuse at this moment. I don't want them to feel like that their fate is sealed and they must stay married at all costs. In fact, if you're suffering at all from any kind of abuse, I urge you to get help and do it today. And understand, we as a church are here to help. But but to be sure, ultimately my goal with this subject is, is to be biblical and not emotional. My goal is to go where the Scriptures lead, and, and that also means I must speak clearly where the Bible does speak clearly, but then at the same time, I must give a lot of grace where it's not as clear. So with that, let's, again, take a look at this text as a starting point for our understanding of the idea of divorce and remarriage. And it says, And he left there, and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, it was his custom, he taught them. The Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. And then he, in the house of the disciples, in the house of the disciples asked him again about the matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now with that, let's talk about the first thing, that some of the things that we know. From the text, we know that marriage is the supernatural union between a man and a woman. It's it's the uniting of two people into one identity. That's what we know. We know that this union is heterosexual in nature. It is between a man and a woman. God created them male and female. And we know that marriage is supposed to be enduring, that it's supposed to be a lifelong union. And we know from this text that that marriage is God-ordained. God designed it, God created it, he purposed it, and he blessed it. And because of that, God, what he says about marriage is absolutely essential. We should take him at his word. And And what God says about marriage and his word should trump how we feel. It should trump our emotions and even should trump what the culture says. 
And we also know that marriage is a wonderful gift from a good God. It is meant to bring great joy. And marriage has three purposes. Procreation, which is having children. Sanctification, which means that marriage is the only proper context for sexual expression. And illustration, it's the picture of a greater reality, our hope in Christ. And every bit of that, every bit of what we know about marriage should cause all of us as one church to stand up with one voice and say, marriage is a sacred institution and must be respected and protected by all of those who follow Christ. All of us should stand for marriage. That We should always affirm what marriage is and be very clear what it's not. And we should, in almost all cases, in almost all cases, advocate that couples stay married. And we should never give consent or our support to someone who seeks divorce for illegitimate reasons. And there's a lot of illegitimate reasons, like this one. I'm just not happy. And I just don't think it's fair for me to stay in a relationship where I'm just not happy. In fact, I don't think that God would want me to be unhappy. So let me get this straight. Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, suffered and died on the cross for the sins that he didn't commit... And he has to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God crushed his own son in an, in an act of selfless love, but you, he wouldn't want to be unhappy. I don't think that those things follow. Or how about this one? I'm just not in love anymore. I just don't feel love anymore. I, just, I used to, but I just fell out of love. <clears throat> well, then I think you just need to, get, you need to fall back into love. Right? Because love that holds a marriage together is not the love about how you feel. If, if it's all the love you've got, you're in trouble. Right? Because it's not. Right? It's about what you do. Love, real love, is not the love of emotion. It's a love of volition. It's a love of the will. You choose to love in spite of how you feel. That's why right? this is the love which, which Christ loved us, by the way. That's the same kind of love Believe me, when he was being beaten and tortured and nailed to the cross, I don't, I mean, I would just suspect that the, the emotional love that's, that's fickle to human nature, right, probably was not the love that was compelling him to go on. It had to be the self-sacrificial love of the will. Not to mention, this is not popular to say, but it's the truth. You have the ability within you to change how you feel. You have the ability within yourself to change how you feel. I just feel the way I feel. The heart wants what it wants. That's just a bunch of baloney. We have the ability within us to change how we feel. By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to change how we feel. We must never give our consent or support to illegitimate, illegitimate reasons for divorce. You must almost always encourage people and families to stay married. Now, I say almost always because... In the text we see, Moses himself, the one who wrote down the law, in the text is allowing for divorce. That's very clear from the text, that there's an allowance for that. So let's, let's look at this again. Verse 2, And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? He said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So very clearly, Moses allowed divorce. Now, what I want you to think about is this. This is the same Moses that met with God on Mount Sinai. This is the Moses who did supernatural miracles by the power of God. 
This is the same Moses who wrote the five books of the Bible, by the way. I think it's pretty reasonable to say that Moses had a pretty good handle on how God felt about marriage and, and, and how seriously God had taken it. But here, the Pharisees clearly attribute to Moses the fact that he's allowing for divorce. And then Jesus, I want you to see, actually agrees with this fact. He says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. Jesus acknowledges that Moses indeed allowed divorce, at least in certain circumstances. Why? You see, we keep asking these two questions. Is divorce allowed, and what are the grounds for divorce? And I believe that these are the wrong questions to ask. The question that we should be asking is this. Why is divorce allowed at all? That should be the question that we should be asking. It seems to, to be that, that God could have said, you know, no divorce, period, end of story. Or that God could have really just given us a very clear set of rules about this. But here it is, in the Word of God, there's the allowance made for divorce. Now understand, I want you to, be very, I want you to hear me on this. Okay? Sometimes people t- look at like, things like divorce and slavery and they say, ah, oh, the, the, the Bible advocated. No, the Bible does not condone or advocate divorce, but it does, as Denny Aiken say, recognize the reality of it. And I think that what we need, I think we need to ask the reason why. Why is this even allowed? Now, Jesus says, <clears throat> it's allowed because of the hardness of people's hearts. And that is absolutely true. As we talked about before, divorce is the result of hard hearts toward God. But what is the underlying reason for, for divorce at all? It's not just simply having a hard heart. There's something more here. And this is, this is the thing that we have to come to the place where we have to let go of our 20th century kind of way of viewing this problem and that we have to understand who Jesus is talking to and what the cultural context is of the time that he's talking to them in. Because if we don't do that, we're going to misapply what he's saying here. The thing we need to understand is at the time, at that time in history, women were not at all even close to being equals with men. That's foundational truth number one that you're going to have to wrap your head around. In fact, they were more actually equated with being property than they were actually being human beings. Women were absolutely second-class citizens. In fact, their testimony was not even valid in court. Right? It was just assumed that women couldn't even tell the truth, that women were unintelligent, that they shouldn't even be taught. Right? That's, that's why when the first witnesses of the resurrection being women is scandalous. That's, by the way, the evidence for the, the truth of the resurrection. Because if you're going to make up a story about Jesus coming back from the dead, you wouldn't start with women witnesses, right? If you're going to make it up, you'd start with, with people that everybody else would find credible. And at that time, women were not credible witnesses according to the law. And Jewish women had no right at all to divorce their husband, even if he cheated on her. See, this whole thing about... Adultery really related just specifically to men. And to make matters worse, they lived in a society where women and children were just very dependent upon their husbands to provide. They were completely dependent. And so the loss of a husband would be devastating in, 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 in ways that we can't even possibly imagine. This, the thing that we, we live at a time right now, where, let's just face it, we're going to feed people, and we do that through the blessing box pantry, Right? We're going to continue to feed people. No one's dying of starvation in Boron, California. Right? No one's dying of starvation in, in, in the United States of America. But people literally died from the fact that there's not food to eat. There was no you know, government assistance. There was none of that. Right? So it could really be a difference between life and death being, you know, being able to, to, to remarry or not. 
And, and Jesus was right. Men were hard-hearted toward their wives. They could get rid of them for any reason at all. In fact, there was a belief in that school of Hillel that, that um, if you met a woman that was prettier than your wife, by definition, your wife just became indecent to you and you can get rid of her so you can go pursue the, the prettier. Right? And I, I mean... We have this kind of notion that people back in that time were just more noble than we are. They're just every bit as sinful as we are today, by the way. Every bit as shallow. Women were seen as property. And if, and if you remember from, from before when we talked about you know, uh, the children coming to Christ, they were seen as the lowest possible members of society. And so many of these men were hard-hearted, and, and divorce was just a common thing that they did when they got tired of their wife. Because men suddenly would just grow tired and, and they didn't want to have to deal with any type of, you know, of, of their issues or he just, if they just got sick of them, they just put them on the street, which then puts them in mortal danger. Their only hope was either to go back to their parents' house if their dad would have them or they would be able to, to be allowed to remarry. But the problem was is that some of these men would cast out their wives, but because of the hardness of their hearts, once the man wanted to marry her, a different man wanted to marry her, the previous husband would come in and swoop in and lay claim to her again, right? I mean, we all, we, I think we all know people who've been crazy jealous like that. Like, if I can't have you, nobody can have you, right? right? Or a woman would get married and come into a lot of money, and then the previous husband then would exercise his right over his wife and then lay claim to that, to that fortune, again, because of the hardness of hearts. And so, because of this, men simply wouldn't marry another woman who had been married before because of the risks were so high to him and his fortune and his, his family. And so, the women were left with no option right, but to, but to try their very best and endure whatever they had to right, in hopes that they would not upset their husband, in hopes that they wouldn't be kicked out. Can you imagine living under that kind of tyranny? And again, this could be life or death. And so the law was not so much then a right for you to get a divorce, but it was rather about protecting the innocent. That's the reason why divorce was even allowed. Notice what Christ said. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. The key thing that you need to see here is the certificate of divorce. You see, it wasn't so much that they were allowing people to do it, but they were commanding you to give a certificate. In other words, if if you divorce your wife, you must give her a piece of paper saying that she is divorced. You had to give her this durable document with ink that did not fade, that states that she is free from you and you have no claim over her anymore, that she now is free to marry the certificate of divorce protected a woman because now she could legitimately pursue re, re, uh, remarriage without the threat of her husband coming back to lay claim on her. The Bible allowing divorce was a concession because the hardness of people's hearts, and it was for the protection of those who were innocent. Women were at the mercy of men and their whims, and this certificate gave them a layer of protection under the law. God is concerned you read, the, you read the Bible, you see that God is concerned with the protection of the innocent. He is concerned with the security of the weak and the powerless. This certificate of divorce wasn't a removal of guilt of the husband before God, as if it was okay for him to get a divorce, but rather it was to protect those who were weak and vulnerable. The certificate was not, you know, not to clear the conscience of the husband so he felt better, who wanted out, but it was to protect the wife and even the children from the hardness of the husband's heart. 
The Bible allowed for divorce to protect the weak, vulnerable, and the powerless and the innocent. And in light of this very fact then, that fact alone should change how we see some things. Because for us to stand up and say that there is no legitimate grounds for divorce and remarriage except for adultery, only it misses the cultural context here and it misses the entire point. Because what about physical abuse? Let's, I mean, let's just talk about that reality. It's a reality in our world. It has been and it continues to be. What about when a husband beats his wife and abuses his children? Although Jesus doesn't explicitly say that is a reason for divorce, I would argue from the context of what, of what happened at the time and the reason for allowing divorce, which is the protection of the innocent, that it's not God's intention for a wife and children to suffer physical harm you know, and live in danger from, from the husband. I believe that you could argue that God is very interested in protecting her and her children. What about emotional abuse? Right? Emotional abuse can be even more devastating than physical abuse. Now, some people are going to say, well, nope. That's not a good reason. That's not a valid reason. God will not allow divorce for that reason. That God is going to condemn her if she leaves for emotional abuse. How about this? If we're going to hold the line here and say that the only possible reason to get a divorce is because of adultery, if that's where we're going to draw the line in the sand, then I want you to hear me on this. Every single marriage in the world is in trouble. And, and here's why. Because what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, he says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. That is the reason for, for being able to get a divorce. But I want you to pay very close attention to what he says next. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus said very clearly that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart, and that, in God's eyes, makes you guilty. Not to mention things like pornography. Which means almost every man who has ever lived, and I would also say almost every woman who has ever lived, has given their spouse grounds for divorce because at some point in their life, they, their, their thoughts about someone else has went to the wrong place, even if only momentarily. And, and I think it's even worse today because of the proliferation of pornography on the internet, but also sexuality in the media. Movies have more and more of that kind of content. Or how about even rom romance novels? Let's, let's go to what, what the women tend to enjoy. What about romance novels? How about Fifty Shades of Grey? They're, they're like, like Christian women who celebrated reading those books and watching those movies. Right? How about TV shows? I mean, the content just continues to grow, and it's more and more risque. I mean, how about even sports like the Super Bowl, like last Sunday? Now, I expected for it to be bad, and so we, we turned, before it even got to the halftime show, we turned it off and had a Bible study because I knew, like, I just knew. I had no idea it was going to be that bad. You know, I, I mean, I heard that it was, it was, it was horrible, but... It's just inescapable in our current culture. It surrounds us on every corner. And the statistics simply don't lie. So I would say that almost everyone at some point in their life has had impure thoughts. And Jesus is saying that in the eyes of God, you are guilty. So does Jesus say now, okay, it's okay for everybody to get a divorce because you've all committed adultery at some point. You see, what happens when you try to create hard and fast rules about this 
This is, by the way, why Jesus in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount helped them to see. You want to create rules, understand the standard is higher than you think. You see, when you, when you create rules and you try to, to pin things down more than what the Scriptures say, what you do is you end up making a mess and, and the issue becomes more complex than you realize and you start taking that legalistic red pin and you start drawing lines of who's condemned and who's not condemned, you're likely to draw yourself into a corner you can't get out of. By the, by the same law that you're pointing to someone else, you're being judged by the same law. But on the other hand... We dare not swing this door open any wider than it already is. We dare not ignore the the, the warnings of Scripture. We dare not, you know, say, hey, any reason you want to get divorced is fine as long as it fits. We must be careful because this is very treacherous ground to walk on. We must be committed to seeking the truth in Scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit. We must be careful to become not to become dogmatic on this issue unless we step out of the intent of Scripture. But at the same time, we can't compromise the truth, not even, not even the slightest degree. So how do we then approach this? Because it's, this is hard. And believe me, talking to people and loving people and counseling people and seeing their lives and, and getting into the intimate details of the messes that they've made in their lives, I'm telling you, this is hard. It's one of the hardest things in the whole world. By the way, of all the things I signed up for as a pastor, that was not the one I even thought about, right? You know, counseling people and trying to help them to hold their marriages together. Well, I found that the best way to approach this subject is through biblical principles rather than hard and fast rules. Principles that give us safe boundaries with which to work things out theologically and also individually. And I say individually because each and every person is going to have to work this out for themselves. Each person is going to have to make the decision, and they're going to have to live with that decision and be responsible to their families and be responsible to God for that decision. I can't be responsible for them. And yes, we as a church, we're going to be there for them, and we're going to do our best to guide them and point them back to the Scriptures, and we're going to pray for them and counsel them, and we're going to do our best to tell them the truth in love. But ultimately... They are going to have to be the ones to work things out with God. They're the ones that are going to have to take their pleas and their troubles and, and their broken hearts to Him. And understand, if you come to me for counseling, I will absolutely prayerfully do my best to understand what you're going through, and I will do my best to point you back to the Word of God and give you the best counsel I can. But please remember, I am not God, which means I am not even close to being infallible. And more than that, I can't see the depths of your heart, and so I can't even see the things that you're hiding from me if you are hiding things from me. And so the best that I can do is offer you advice based on a limited set of knowledge of the facts. And and I try to offer principles to remind them of every, every choice that they have ultimately has consequences, both good and bad. Consequences that affect their family, their life, their relationships with the church, even their relationship with God, but ultimately they are the ones that have to make the decision. We can't do it for them. But we can certainly look at the text and identify several principles that will guide and help them to make a God-honoring decision. It's such a hard, complex issue, which leads to principle number one. In all situations, we must begin by being willing to submit our will to God. If we don't start there, then what we're going to do is just going to choose what we want anyway, and it doesn't matter. 
But if we need to start legitimately and seriously, we need to point people back and say, you need to get on your face and seek God's will here. We must be willing to say, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And we find in our, who's our example here? Our example is Christ himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus said, Father, if you were willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus didn't want to suffer the wrath of God. He didn't want to have to endure the cost, but he submitted his heart and himself to the will of the Father. That's why he said, not my will, but your be done. You must seek legitimately. If you follow Christ, you must seek legitimately with all your hearts God's will for your marriage and say, Lord, whatever you decide, your will, not my own. Principle number two, you must make an informed decision, which means you need to make sure that you, you make this decision prayerfully and studiously. You need to read all that the Bible says about marriage, not just a couple of passages. You need, you need to do the study. You need to look at all the texts, and you need to listen to what God is saying in his word, and you need to bathe it in prayer. Ask God to show you the way. Paul says, pray without ceasing. He also says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You must do what you can do to make an informed decision. Principle number three, you must just clearly recognize that there are illegitimate reasons to get divorced. Everyone's always asking, what's the legitimate reason to get divorced? Which, it would be easier if you just went down the list of all the things that were illegitimate. And there's a lot of them. I'm just not happy. I'm just not in love anymore. We're just two different people. You know, all we do is argue. I'm just not attracted to her anymore. Man, he's put on too much weight. Right? She doesn't make me breakfast every day. He never helps me around the house at all. The sound of him chewing wants me to make, wants, makes me want to throat punch him. Right? She spends all the stinking money. These are examples of illegitimate reasons for divorce, by the way. These are the reasons why you need to work on your marriage. These are the reasons why you might need to seek counseling, but these are illegitimate. They're not grounds for divorce. God is, I want you to hear me on this. And this is, this is, this is something that, that the world does not want us to hear. God is not interested in you being comfortable, all right? He's not. Think about the Apostle Paul, right? He's not interested in, in you continually, perpetually being happy every single day, right? He is interested in you growing toward maturity, and sometimes growth is painful. Principle four. We just need to admit to ourselves that, that marriage is supposed to be a lifelong institution. That's God's plan and the ending of a marriage is catastrophic for everyone involved. Remember, the idea is that two become one flesh. In the Jewish culture, the idea was that you had a whole person that's being ripped in half by divorce. Divorce is catastrophic by its nature. Right? It's against God's holiness. It defies his plan. It tarnishes the portrait of, of Christ in the church. And divorce has far-reaching consequences as a result. And so... so so whatever rationale that, that a person has for divorce, it needs to be earth-shattering. Marriage has, has, it was meant to be a lifelong, and the effects of divorce are catastrophic. Principle number five, God hates divorce. Let's not tiptoe around that subject. We need to know it, own it, accept it. He hates it, he hates it, he hates it. 
It's counter to his design for mankind. And as such, we need to, to be honest with ourselves and those that we advise to leave. Is the reason for leaving great enough for you to engage in something that God absolutely hates? Now, again, I would say that adultery is probably that one of those areas. I think physical abuse, again, is also those areas. I think, like, I think, I think abandonment, you can make a case for that. But we need to be careful. We need to be very wary, treading into an area that God hates. And principle number six, if this is the one that many people don't think about, but there is always hope for reconciliation. I have seen God reconcile couples that everyone else would have seen that it was impossible, that would have never, ever happened. And so in your moment of crisis, you might think reconciliation in that moment's impossible. Remember, but God is the God who changes hearts. God is the God who does the impossible. He does miracles by his very nature. All things are possible with God. Principle number seven, the last principle I'll share with you today, is a principle of safety. No woman or no man should ever live under the threat of physical violence or sexual abuse. Ever. And neither should children. And I want you to hear me on that. Any man who abuses his spouse or children gives up the right to lead his family. And if you or anyone you know experiences such thing, the first thing that you must do is take steps to get safe. Get out of the situation. Get your kids out of the situation. Get law enforcement involved. Don't hesitate. That is a must. God has given us law enforcement to help us to untangle these kinds of things. And understand... We as a church are here to help. If you or anyone you know is suffering from any kind of abuse, we are here to help. And everything that we talk about is strictly confidential. And we know what our job is. Our job is not to do our own investigation to figure out who is right and who is wrong. Our job in those kinds of situations is to make sure that you are safe and get you help, including getting law enforcement involved, as well as other services to protect children. In fact, we have with us this morning in our church an expert in these matters, and she is available to help, as, uh, and she has many resources at her disposal. Pam Giddens works in that very area there. Hear me. For First Baptist Church, your safety is our top priority, always. You can address the marriage and divorce question later. Safety is paramount for all of us here. Now, that's just some of the principles that I think that we find in Scripture, and there are more that we can live by from the Bible on this subject, but I think that this is a good foundation for you to work from. I believe that if, you're truly, if you truly work through these and get help working through these, that you will be much safer, on much safer ground as you figure out what it is that, that you need to do for your marriage. But I don't want to end there. I want to end with this question. What about those who have already walked this road? Because this is, a, this is, this is an issue that's effect, that affects so many people. What if you've already gotten a divorce? What if you've already been remarried? What, what if you've never even sought God's will and you never studied the issues and, and you just got a divorce and you just, just pursued it on your, you know, you're just like, I'm doing it. What if you walked this road and despite your best efforts, you know, the divorce just ripped your entire family in two? Or worse, what, what, what if you're the reason why things ended? What if you're the reason, the reason why the, 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 the marriage ended? What if you're the one who cheated? What if you're the one who, who was the abuser? What if you were the one who destroyed your family by addiction or apathy? What about then? 
Well, the answer to all of those is all the same answer. And that is repent and believe the gospel. It's always the same answer. You see, it's the same answer for all of your shortcomings, for all of your sins. We repent and believe the gospel. We turn away from our old lives and our old attitudes and we turn towards God in faith and believe that he will forgive us of this sin as well as all of our other sins. The same grace that God covers all of your other sins, he uses to cover this as well. Christ died for all of your sins, including this one. You repent and believe the gospel and walk out from underneath the guilt and the shame of divorce or adultery or any other sin. You were cleansed by the very same blood that Christ cleanses you from everything else. The call is for you to repent and believe. The call is for you to turn to Christ in faith, trusting him to forgive you. And he will because he's faithful. But then how does this work out for us practically? Well, it's really going to depend. Sorry. It's going to depend on your circumstances, I think. And and I'm going to give you, so this last little bit is just some thoughts from Pastor Sherman Okay, I believe that if you and your spouse divorce and you're not remarried, I believe that it's incumbent upon you to pursue reconciliation to the, to the point that, that it's within you to do it. I believe to the degree that, that it depends on you, you should pursue reconciliation. Obviously, it's a two-way street, and if the other one doesn't reciprocate, you can't do it for them. But I think as long as the two of you are unmarried, you should pursue reconciliation as long as it is possible. Now, if your spouse marries someone else, reconciliation then has become impossible. right? Because you don't want to be the cause of another divorce and, 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 and compound the issue, especially if other children get involved. Now, if you are remarried already, here's, here, here's, here, I think that the Bible makes it clear that you should stay married. If, you're, if you've been remarried... And I, I say that because I've had somebody ask me this question. Somebody wanted to leave his wife because, because she was divorced previously and he was trying to... Here's the thing. If you get remarried, stay married. And then from that point, be faithful and endure this marriage until the end. You repent of your old attitude that allowed for divorce in the first place and you work your heart out to make this marriage work and you do your best to be at peace with, with everyone around you, including your your previous spouse, and especially your children. And the truth is, God can, hear me, God can and does take disasters that we make, and he can, he can use them by his grace to redeem them and turn them into something good and wonderful for his, his glory. His grace and mercy and, and love are powerful. God is a God of redemption. I mean, isn't that even the gospel, Right? God can take your worst, take the worst of worst sinners and the worst possible situation in the entire world and completely turn their lives around. That's why we hold so fast to Romans 8.28. All things work together for good are those who love God and called according to his purpose. In fact, it's my story. I was married for many years previously. And my first wife and I, for seven years straight, fought all the time. And to make matters worse, I was an unbeliever, and I was very selfish in my own perspective of things. And one night in the middle of a horrible argument, I sensed that we were at a place where things were about to get very, very out of hand. And I knew then that it was dangerous. And so, believing that there was no hope, we got a divorce. 
And even though that I pursued peace to the best of my ability and did everything I could to make it amicable and to protect my children, it was still catastrophic. It was catastrophic financially, it was catastrophic emotionally, and worse, worse, it was catastrophic on my children and the consequences of that divorce lasted for decades and decades and decades. And in the intervening years, I also lived a very selfish life and I indulged my sinful nature and I lived for me and I continued to make things worse and worse and worse and worse by by the choices I was making. But for some reason that I still cannot fathom, God allowed me to find Kim and marry her. For some reason, God had allowed her heart to be open to my heart, a guy who'd made a complete train wreck out of his life, right? And then to have children with her, and then out of our life together, and then out of our our son's life, to somehow change my stone-cold heart and draw me to the cross and bring salvation to my life. And year after year, God has worked in me, changing me, changing my attitude, changing my heart, bringing healing in just about every part of my life. And he's completely made me new. And he's given me the strength to stay married and to work things out with Kim, even during some very difficult times in our life. And more than that, God saw fit to use a horribly flawed, broken vessel like me to not only lead my family and, and to be a husband to my wife and a father to my children, but God then, by his grace, allowed me to be the minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm just going to tell you, I don't, I don't worry about the Trinity. Like, that doesn't bother me. The mystery for me is why would God even save someone like me? But God can absolutely take the worst parts of your life and use them for good in his glory because he is sovereign, he is merciful, and he is loving. We just need simply to repent and believe the gospel, which is always the answer to all of our sin, the answer to all of our disasters, that we come face to face with the fact that God is holy and righteous, and we recognize that we have fallen short of that, and we understand that it's impossible for us on our own to to fix ourselves, let alone save ourselves. We finally come to the place where we see how desperate the situation is, and we understand that God, right, because of our sin, we deserve nothing from Him but His, His wrath and His judgment. But for some reason, God in His overwhelming grace and love made a way for us to be reconciled to Him, and also those around us as well. And that way is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came in the world to walk in your shoes, to identify with who you are, And he lived the perfect life that you couldn't live. And he fulfilled the law that you can't fulfill. And he then went to the cross and took upon himself your sin and bore in his body the wrath and the penalty you couldn't bear. And on that cross, your sins are atoned to him and his righteousness is atoned to you. And Christ died on the cross, was buried resurrected, and three days later, physically and literally walked out of the grave, and he ascended into heaven and is right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for all those who believe in him. And all you have to do is repent and believe the gospel and be saved. Your sins are washed away. You'll be made new. You have eternal life. The Holy Spirit will come and live inside of you, leading you and guiding you, and God can take all the pieces of your broken life and turn it into something for his glory and for your good.
and the good for your family. Because God is the God of restoration. Now, there's a whole lot I can say more about this, okay? And, And we will over time. But wrapping up this section of Mark, let us remember that marriage is the sacred, God-ordained, lifelong union between a man and a woman. And we must do everything that we can to respect it and protect it. And we must remember that the gospel is the power of God to save both the soul and also your marriage and your family. And the answer for all of your shortcomings is the same. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your old attitudes and throw yourself completely, totally upon the mercy and the grace of God and depend on him alone. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that what was preached from this pulpit is what you would have their hearts to hear. And that, Father, that if I am in error, Lord, that you would then correct that in their hearts. That, Father, to the very best of my ability, I have been loving, but I have also done my very best to tell the truth. And, Lord God, I pray that you would then take your word and press it upon all of our hearts, Lord God, and help us all, Lord God, to receive your teaching. And that, Lord, as we explore this together, Lord, that we would come alongside each other. This is an issue that affects many people around us and even in our church, Lord God. And I just pray that this is an issue that would draw all of our hearts together in love because because this is something that, that hurts so many of our brothers and sisters, Lord. Let our hearts be tender for one another, Lord, to come alongside each other, not with rules, and not with, 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 with looking down our noses, but with compassion and love and, and wise counsel and, and understanding and patience and long-suffering and, and being there day and night to help one another through these things, Lord. Use this teaching, Lord God, to heal your people here and then give us the strength and to go out and proclaim the gospel out there, Lord. Help us, Lord God, to make your people here whole. Bring healing to their marriages and their relationships, Lord. Help them to see, Lord God, your goodness and your plan. Help them to see that the strength that they need doesn't come from them, but it comes from you. And I pray, Father God, you would use this in a way that's glorifying to your holy and precious name. And I pray your blessing over each person here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.